Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, no matter where you may find yourself as you listen to this. And welcome to the show that is um, incredibly exhausted from a long weekend of Valentine's Day uh, life in Dallas, Texas, and just got back today. Um, it's another episode of It's a Black and White Thing. I am your host, Carlos Johnson, one half of the Dynamic Duo. You can listen to this show if you go to iTunes and search It's a Black and White Thing or SoundCloud.com backslash Brains and Bars. If you prefer to listen on your computer, you can go to AmpedEntertainment.net and listen to the show there. We're also um, on Twitter, on Twitter, Facebook. Um, you can search at Brains and Bars. You'll find us on Twitter and Facebook. Like us on Twitter. Um, like us on Facebook, sorry. Follow us on Twitter. Um, as normally, we're at the Clear Ear, formerly the MMP Studios, but I like to call this Amp Records South. We're here at... Uh, with the homie uh, B, we're at his house, who's recording us tonight. So no Clear Ear Studios plug tonight, but shout out to Trent, who normally holds us down. Also, uh, I do a radio show um, on Wednesdays and Saturday evenings from 6.45 to 7.15 p.m. Um, on Praise 95.3 FM KCPZ, called The Sports Disciples, so you can catch me there. And normally, my co-host, A-Ward, is with me. I'll normally turn it over to him to do his plug, but he's not here, so I do it for him. Go to IamAward.com. You can check out all of his material, his battles, his itinerary, upcoming events. He's going to be at South by Southwest coming up here in the next month or so. If I can get a hall pass from the wifey, I will be joining him at South by Southwest uh, next month because um, I've always wanted to attend that so go to IamAward.com, check out all of his battles, um, all of his uh, performances at churches. It's all there. Everything A-Ward can be found there. Um, also, I want to shout out A-Ward. Um, he recently had a death in the family. His uncle passed. So our condolences on behalf of the show to uh, to the ward, to their family. Um, and, yeah, so um, also artists. If you are an artist out here, in March we're going to kind of have the show broken down into 15-minute segmented uh, arrangement. So in between that, we'll be playing like 30 seconds of music. So if you're an artist out there and you want to get your music heard, yes, we're a small time startup podcast, but you can say back way back when we were on uh, the It's a Black and White thing before either you guys blew up or we blow up. Either whichever happens first, right? So um, so send us your music um, if you have profanity in it because we try to be a clean family podcast try to bleep it out if not we'll try to do edit that out um as well um but yeah starting in march start sending us your music so as always we begin the show by talking about what i learned over the last week and um so this show is going to be a little bit different and i'm going to get more into that in a second but i learned two things over the last week first first off um i read an article about millennials um, and how millennials are the worst thing ever and how they're destroying society and, you know, the um, participation, pr participation trophy culture is destroying America. And I am, frankly, quite tired of hearing about it. Um, one, I am kind of on that borderline where depending on who you talk to, I am a millennial or sometimes I am a part of, I believe it's the... Y generation, I think it's because I think millennials are Z, I believe. Nope, 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 um, nope. So millennials are Y. Same. Yeah. Same, okay. So, but depending on who you talk to, I'm right on that borderline for either the previous generation or millennials. So I'm not taking that personally. I do feel that there's some line of demarcation between how I was raised and my sensibilities and attitudes and then some of the younger kids. Um, but be that as it may, guys, 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 
who raised millennials? Right. I mean, like, I mean, we do, we just have to start there. Like millennials don't come out being entitled and whiny and and bratty and all those things. They don't come out of the womb like that. Like someone has a hand in creating these so-called monsters that are going to destroy our society. So let's take a step back and look at the parents, maybe. And let's see how they were raised. Now, I think to me, this is encapsulated greatly in a clip. So the movie Fences just came out and on Facebook there is um, there's a clip circulating of James Earl Jones and I believe it is a young Courtney B. Vance um, acting out the scene Why Don't You Like Me? So if you've seen the movie Fences or if you've seen any of the promos they have that clip of Why Don't You Like Me and Denzel goes through you know I don't have to like you um, you know that type that whole spiel. James Earl Jones um, this is 1986 is when this clip was shown he is very stiff. He is very rigid. He is very hard. The audience is stone cold silent. Now I'm going to why that is is important is for this reason. So I have heard my parents um, and my parents' uh, brothers and sisters talk about their upbringing, how it was very hard. Um, their parents were very cold. Their parents were very, they were loving in ways, but that love sometimes is hard to see. And so when they talk about it, it is a I don't want to say bitter, uh, but in some place, in some ways, it is a bitter retelling of these stories. They don't find a lot of humor in them. And my mother has said to me specifically, I didn't want to raise you the way I was way I was raised, where my mother was very hard on me. And so in turn, that created this kind of shift in attitude of how, at least for my community, for myself, how I was raised and the sensibilities in which my parents raised me, which in turn, you know, you have now my generation is raising children. And then that you know, we kind of, I mean, I had a good life. Like, my mom was hard, but I don't think, I don't have any bitter retellings of it. So when you, when you watch the audience listen to the James Earl Jones piece, they're very quiet. When you go to the, I believe it's 2011, when Denzel is now doing this scene of Why Don't You Like Me, he's not as rigid. He's not, he's stern. He's not as mean. He's a lot meaner in the movie. He's, a, he's not as stern, but when he talks about Why Don't You Like Me, he goes, I, do I have to like you? The audience responds in laughter. And so there's a shift in sensibilities between the generation who's watching it in the 80s, in my opinion, and the generation who's watching it now. And so I think if you look at that, I think you look at how parenting, look at the 60s and then psychology started to come into shape during that time going forward. You look at all these confluence of events kind of all making this perfect storm, if you will, and you have millennials. So that was a long rant to say, if I read one more article about how millennials are the worst thing ever, I'm going to lose my lunch. Like, please, please, please do some evidence and some, I don't want to say research, but just do some, you know, just kind of participation trophies have been around for 50 years. Some, you know, they've, they preceded our, my generation. Like, I, and I, and another day we'll have this conversation about participation trophies and how they're not the worst thing in the world if you use it as motivation. I mean, we famously talk about Michael Jordan being cut from his high school basketball team, and he never lets you forget that. Michael Jordan never forgets any slight of, and even though some of them may not be real, but that's neither here nor there. But anyway, the other thing that I learned this week. So for uh, Valentine's Day, Valentine's Day was last week. Um, I surprised my wife on Valentine's Day with a trip to Dallas, Texas. Uh, one thing we like to do in the show is we like to travel. So me and some of the homies, we get out once a year for a guy's trip. Um, and then I travel with my wife on various adventures throughout the year as well. And so I've never been to Dallas. My first time there um, had a really good time, although I list how I like a city based on if I want to move there. 
do not want to move to Dallas. Very spread out. Um, it took 30 and 40 minutes to get anywhere. Um, traffic, the traffic was bad. The drivers were worse, if that makes sense. Traffic sucked. Um, people drive incredibly fast or incredibly slow, and there seems to be no variation between the two. Um, but one of the highlights of my trip, which is going to lead into um, our special guest that we have tonight, one of the highlights of my trip was I, in an in attempt to do something different while we we're out of town, I got tickets to the da Black Dallas Black Dance Theater. Um, they were having a cultural awareness show that was celebrating the 40 years of the Dallas Black Dance Theater. So as they um, went through their, their dances and their routines, which were set to classic mu music of the, I believe it was 50s and 60s, there was Ray Charles, um, there was uh, Marvin Gaye, um, there was the, f after intermission, there was a, a tribute to jazz. Um, so it was very, as a guy who normally does not participate in ballets and go to those type of things i found it to be very uh enlightening it was very fun um it was it was dope like the wally theater in dallas texas um there was not a bad seat in the house we were maybe eight rows back right in the middle um and there was a class i took um this past semester at where i go to school where we were told to pay attention to lighting to um, to how people were dressed and, and, and how all of that factored into the performances of movies that I watched. And so I had a great a greater appreciation for this performance than I would have before I took this class. Um, one of my favorite um, pieces from their performance, they performed a song from Marvin, doing the Marvin Gaye set called Distant Lover. Um, the lighting was, I mean, it was very, it was an intimate dance, but not in, you know, the... Um, today's generation of intimate, but kind of in that subtle uh, cuddling type deal. It's kind of hard to explain. You had to see it, but the lighting was great. Uh, one of the other pieces that I really enjoyed was there was a reflection of the men who have danced in the Dallas Black Dance Theater. Um, and the guys had a performance where they had the, the light, background lighting was such the, there were some stage lights that kind of gave you this um, wild jungle type feel to it. The music was jazz, but it was very fast paced. It was high energy. It was moving. And so you were taking all this in and it just kept kind of gave you the sense of, hey, these are guys who are having fun. Like these are guys who are in the their prime of their lives. They're having fun. They're being playful young men. And so it was very cool. And so to thank for that appreciation <laughs> for to think I have the person I have to thank for the, my appreciation of the lighting, of the costuming, of the set of of that uh, of that entire ensemble is here with us tonight to talk about the Oscars, which is happening this weekend. Um, he is the Associate Professor of English at Rockhurst University. He is Professor Jason Arthur, who is joining us tonight on a special episode of It's a Black and White Thing. How are you tonight, sir? I'm great, Carlos. Thank you. I'm glad to know that my class helped you better appreciate black dance theater <laughs> lighting specifically. It was, I mean, it, it, it was, like, again, it was not just the lighting, but again, it was so in the moment, um, the ability of them to change, sometimes doing mid-selection, so they would start out on stage, run off, quickly change, come back, and still not look, not look unkempt. They looked mm -hmm. great. I mean, it was all of that. It was the lighting, the costume, the music. It was all something that I really appreciated and something that if I'm in the Dallas area again and they are performing while I'm there, I'm going to visit them again. So Okay. Pop quiz. Lighting, costuming, 
actor performance. Uh-huh. <laughs> These are elements of what fundamental, f- it's, uh, what fundamental of cinema form. I'll make it. I'll make it multiple choice. Okay, no, never mind. I don't need to. Mise en scene. There, there you go. Mise en scene. It, it was yeah. the toughest one. It was yeah. the French phrase. Staging. Yeah. Yes, the mise en scene. Yeah. Very good. Go. Cool. Yeah. Also, uh, one mm-hmm. last thing about that. Shout out to there was a lady who performed and was pregnant. Nice. Um, and pregnant. Was her name and Beyonce because she did that too recently. <laughs> <laughs> um. No, it was she wasn't quite at Beyonce. I don't think she was carrying twins, so I don't think she was. But you could tell. So like we were watching, and my wife goes, "That lady's got a little bit of a pooch going on." Um, and so we were watching. I'm like, "Yeah," and I said, "Is she pregnant?" So we thought that she had just had a baby. Um, but she performed in the first opening set. You didn't see her again until they came out at the very end, where she was noticeably pregnant. And kudos to her. I mean, she was amazing. Um, the way she moved, jumped, I mean, with a baby inside of her. Yo, shout out to that lady. She was great. Um, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I reached out to you a while back and said I wanted to have you on because I wanted to talk about the Oscars, which are coming up this weekend. I'm not sure what I'm going to call this series, but it's just a – It's yes, this is a sports show, uh, but we also don't want to be confined to that. We want to talk about different events that happen and also mm-hmm. talk to people who are in – outside of the normal world of nine to five. So if you could just kind of give the people a brief description of what it is that you do every day or in your time as as a professor. Sure. Well, so basically I've been, um, I'm in my seventh year at, is it seventh? I started in 2010. So I guess that is the seventh year at Rockhurst University. Um, I'm an English professor, which basically means that I've been doing research on millennials <laughs> for a long time. And I know a lot about their need for uh, for participation trophies uh, in the form of inflated grades. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and I I am uh, unlike Carlos, uh, who is on the who is on the edge. So so so, were you talking early '80s? You talking like yep, 80, '82? '82. '82. I was, I, I was going to guess '82. Okay. I'm I'm a I am a full fledged member of Generation X. Although I'm late Generation X, late 1970s. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I, I'm I'm an English professor. I I spend actually these days I I don't spend my day doing any of the things I've been doing for seven years because I'm on sabbatical, which uh, is something they give you every seven years. Uh, you're given half a year uh, to work on a research project. So I but but for the for the most part, the way that uh, Carlos you and I met was. Um, in my capacity as a film professor, which is kind of a secondary interest, my my primary interest is American uh, literature. I teach I, I teach courses in contemporary American fiction, and I and that's also what I write about. I've been um, I've been writing uh, recently. I've been sort of moving from scholarly writing to more uh, general writing. I'm still doing scholarly writing, and by scholarly writing, I'm I mean things that nobody reads. Uh, as opposed to, <laughs> as opposed to uh, ri- writing for a popular audience, uh, which is which is something I've been kind of doing recently, and my my focus has been uh, contemporary fiction and culture. Um, so yeah, film's kind of a secondary uh, in- interest of mine, and um, but yeah, that's been so as as a as a professor, as an English professor, I we also at Rockers we teach a lot of uh, uh, first year writing courses, so. Uh, that's a lot of the grunt work, uh, as as uh, folks or as colleagues of mine and would would sort of characterize it. But it's something that actually 
uh, is is one of the more rewarding aspects of 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 the um, of of the job. Uh, insofar as I can teach people that writing is is a means for um, establishing a voice and sort of recognizing your ability to have power in a system that otherwise doesn't recognize you as powerful. So I, you know, I tell my students on the first day of class, I'm like, you guys are, you guys are a name on a roster. It's up to you whether or not by the end of the semester, you are a shaping force of this university. Uh, and, and the tool you have for, uh, for making that decision is your ability to, uh, to write and, um, sort of to, uh, to, to bring it back to the, uh, the, the topic at hand, I have, I have a quote here from, um, the, the director of Moonlight, which who's the, the man's name, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Barry, Barry Jenkins, he just recently won won, won a big award uh, at the Writers Guild, uh, the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, where he said, um, I can't say that writing will get you on the award stage, but it will bring you close to the world, which I think was a really nice way of um, talking about writing in general, but specifically screenwriting, which is something we'll be talking a little bit about tonight. Yeah, yeah. So I, as you brought up Moonlight, which is one of the um, more popular films of the past year, mm-hmm. um, also up for a lot of Oscar nominations, mm-hmm. um, let's go ahead and jump right into that. So nominations that came out, was it late January, early February? Yeah. So, I mean, kind of your thoughts on, uh, I mean, on best screenplay, because I believe Moonlight is one of the movies that is up for best screenplay. It is, and I didn't know until recently that it was a. It's an adapted screenplay. It's actually adapted from a, a play, uh, that it, an autobiographical play. Um, the writer, I'm not going to give him credit right now, but um, it's so. So it's a. It's an adapted screenplay, which kind of surprised me. I knew Fences was an adapted screenplay because I, I've taught Fences. I'm a big fan of August Wilson's plays, and um, so so those two are the two sort of uh, screenplays for adaptation um, of, you know, a story that exists in some other medium that, that I'm, that I've, that I've seen. I, I also just, just today uh, in preparation for this podcast, I'm a little late to it, but I just saw hidden uh, figures today. I don't know if you can tell. I, I, I washed off all the tears before I came over. <laughs> I cried a lot in that movie. It's one of them tear jerkers. Um, so yeah, which that that one's also um, an an adapted screenplay, and then the as far as screenplays that are up for um, original that I've seen, I've seen La La Land, and uh, Manchester by the Sea. So those are the uh, uh, those those are the five of the screenplays. I haven't seen Lion. I haven't seen Hell or High Water. Haven't seen The Lobster, um, or Twentieth Century Women. But um, Arrival. I didn't know Arrival was. That's adap- adapted, adapted screenplay. Yeah, yeah. I huh. mean, it's a, a lot of, you know, as as we talked about in Lytton Cinema, which, of course, Carlos uh, took from me, like a lot of, you, you know, that one of the one one of the old adages is that a bad m- book will make a good movie. A good book never makes a good movie. Good movie. So, so there's always this sort of adapting in the direction of, of uh, you know, you never want to choose something to, uh, to um, uh, renowned to adapt because then you're setting yourself up for failure, which is what I thought, which is, I think, what is so, um, one of the things that's so um, courageous about the choice of Fences um, the, by, by Denzel Washington to direct that, I think, was uh, he was he was taken on 
uh, to use the word of another um, uh, uh, nominee. He was taking on a lion of American literature when uh, when he adapted Fences. Um, so yeah, I was um, I was pretty. I don't know where do you, do you want to where where do you want to go with sort of talking about well screenplay. I, well, I do want to. So you've seen you said you saw Fences, right? Yes. Okay, so I do. I would like to get your take on that particular movie. In part because you have read the screenplay, mm-hmm. um, so when I wa- me and my wife watched it, we did we both liked it. I think for her, she talked about it had a that she could tell it was a play in mm-hmm. certain parts. Mm-hmm. Um, in part mm-hmm. because a lot because it was set in one particular area. There weren't a lot of different scenery that you're looking at. It's mostly in, either in their house or in the backyard while he's working on the fence or just swinging the baseball bat. What what are what was your take on watching the movie version um, versus maybe having taken in the play or versus having read the read the play itself? Yeah, so I taught the play um, in act in a course I taught years and years ago on uh, sports literature, and, uh, and and Fences was one of two baseball themed plays that, that that I taught. The other one was called Take Me Out, um, but but Fences, yeah. So Fences, it's a I was I was not looking forward to this movie. I love the the play, um, but it is it is not a movie that lends itself to uh, to visual interest. Right? It is it is a, it's a very sedentary scene. Right? You you have the one scene. It's very it's a you know it, it's kind of a almost stylized sort of world where we have the sort of you know the the gradual construction of the fence and we have that sort of you know almost. You know, overtly symbolic. Um, you know, uh, baseball hanging from the tree, right? So, I mean, we we there are things about it that I, I couldn't imagine, sort of translating into a film that would be would carry audience interest for you know two hours. But I was I I, I was I was wrong, um, and I think that one one of the things I was struck by, other than um, Viola Davis's amazing um, performance, uh, is the um, the way, and I mean, I and I think one of the things that made the actor performance so, uh, so, so assertive was that was the, the the sort of the keeping the camera rolling, right? There were there were a lot of long takes, uh, you know, and and a lot of reframing. So we sort of had that. I mean, your your wife was like, I mean, I I had the same reaction that, that your wife did, right? You know, this is as a as a viewer, I am my head is rotating. As the you know with with the camera we're not there there's not a lot of you know in there, there's not a lot of cutting or in intercutting right there's not there's you know everything is sort of happening in real time so you get a sense of sort of life being lived and I think that that um, that comes across right from the start right where we sort of you know we have we have uh, uh, Denzel Washington's character coming home um, with his friend and you know and it, and we basically the first the opening scene is as long as it takes for them to drink that half pint of, of scotch or whatever it was, right? So or what I it was probably gin. I can't remember. But anyway, yeah, I can't yeah. Something <laughs> so, uh, dark. Something, something oh, it was brown. Dark? Okay, so it was brown. So so scotch or or bourbon. So 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 then um so, so you had that kind of, you know, these the segmenting of the movie was sort of, you know, dependent on the you know, the action or the the conversation that that was happening. And you know, and, and you had to kind of, you know, be drawn in by the performance right in order you know and and so when denzel washington's character sort of moves into this moment of like 
reverie where he stops moving as a as 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 an actor but moves back in time through these stories and we, i mean that you know and being drawn in not by any visual interest but by storytelling uh was like i i was very excited that 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 it was that it was able to uh to do that because you know I I I'm I'm one of these millennial haters that thinks that like you can <laughs> that like the ability of like you know sort of the, the the like narrative arcs have been destroyed by the kind of you know the a culture that that sort of rewards too readily um, you know this a sort of quick pace right so the so the fact that this that that, that the pacing was very humane and subtle and also that it was that it was engrossing like said good things so for those of you one there there's going to be spoiler alert so if you haven't seen any of these movies i mean that's that's your bad um from number one um so i don't feel too bad for you the movies have been out for a long time Um, i mean come on there there's still movies i haven't seen that came out in 1946 there (laughs) there are people who have not seen star wars to kind of give a pop culture reference so you know um Gosh, what was I getting ready to say? Now I lost my train of thought. Sorry. Um, no, you're fine. Oh, pacing. So I will say that I want to make a TV reference here uh, for those for those who maybe what is he talking about by pacing? And he says the pacing is very fast, very quick. Uh, think any Shonda Rhimes vehicle that you watch on TV where they're talking extreme, which is a pet peeve of mine. Although I feel like Ally McBeal kind of. At least for me, I'm maybe man. if you remember Ally McBeal, I feel like Ally McBeal was very quick paced and back and forth, but that is neither here nor there. But any Shonda Rhimes vehicle, Grey's Anatomy, How to Get Away with Murder, Scandal, Scandal, especially because I watch Scandal. I hate watch Scandal at this point with my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, very quick pace, very fast, very back and forth, tennis ball, volleys. And so that's what he means when he talks about pacing. And yeah, there were lots of long, like you said, especially from Denzel's. Uh, character where he just kind of goes in these long stories about you know the devil I looked the devil in my eye and said you know not today and he's always telling the stories about fighting cheating death the devil um, and things of that nature so so that's what when he gets in the pacing that's what he's uh, referencing there mm-hmm. um, of, the, of the movies that you have seen that have been up for best picture or mm-hmm. best screenplay which was your favorite I think that they all, I mean, each of the ones that I've seen were, they sort of were, basically, I mean, the slightly different question that I'll answer is like, which is, if if, if I had to recommend one movie from 2016, uh, yeah. um, I would have to recommend Moonlight because I have not seen anything like that before. And I think that um, if you are looking for um, you know, a, a a a single piece of culture from this past year that is that you know is is innovative and singular. Uh, Moonlight is definitely uh, the one. Now, it's also you know when it's you know if something is innovative and singular, it also you know it it kind of by definition isn't also isn't really necessarily kind of woven into the specific sort of time right so it's not as though this is it's not as though moonlight is a is is a is a um, a way into kind of understanding the the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age of 2016 which was a terrible year it was a crazy year that all kinds of awful things happened um moonlight is one of these uh 
one, one of these things that happened in 2016 that um, is likely to, I think, set the tone uh, stylistically or aesthetically for uh, for a lot of younger filmmakers coming up, right? So that so it was it was a film that I think is uh, uh, is going to be imitated. Wow. Uh, stylistically to to varying degrees. So I have not seen Moonlight. I I need to see Moonlight. So yes, I have to check that out. So that from by the way, we're speaking with Professor Jason Arthur, the associate professor of English at Rockhurst University, and also one of my professors whose classes I really enjoyed last semester. He was uh, late all the time. I was late all the time. Um, that I mean, a guy who's working nine to five, you know, it's, always with the excuses. I, I guess very how millennial of me, right? <laughs> but um, but yeah, so we're talking Oscars. So we're talking, you know, um, we've been talking about best screenplay, uh, best film. Um, let's talk a little bit about the actors and actresses who are up for um, best actor and actress mm-hmm. uh, for the Oscars coming up this Sunday. Um, I don't, I don't, I guess I'll kind of turn it over to you. I don't know if there's any specific thing you want to say about them or if there's, if you're leaning any particular way um, or if there's any, what thoughts you have on those, on these cast of characters who are up for this award. Well, Janelle Monáe didn't get nominated for either of the, her amazing performances, so I'm not leaning anyway. Um, <laughs> oh, hold on! Before you say that, I know one is is Hidden Figures. The second one, she's also in Moonlight. Real? Oh, that's right. And by the way, Kansas City, Kansas City, Kansas native, KCK native, yeah, uh, Janelle Monáe. Mm-hmm. So shout out to her. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Okay. Cool. <laughs> so yeah. So no, the um, so as far as like, I don't know where I'm leaning. But I do know. I mean, I, I was. Uh, I I, I want to take credit for um, bet when 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 I saw Moonlight. I don't know back in like November when it first showed up in Kansas City. I think I was the first person on Twitter to hashtag Oscars so Moonlight uh, as an answer <laughs> to twenty to to the twenty sixteen Oscars debacle of Oscars so white. Uh, so so there there was an interesting kind of. Um, uh, you know that that I think set the stage for, or at least you know, kind of created. I don't know. I, basically, basically, there's no way to talk about actors without sort of talking about, you know, that particular cultural moment, like last la- last year, where we basically had no actors of color or directors of color in any in in any major um, nomination slots, right? Which is not the case uh, this year. I mean, I think by my count, I'm seven of the twenty acting um, um, slots are 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 people of color. So, which I, which is um, you know not necessarily you know. I mean, would I I guess in that particular context, I mean, it's 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 sort of it seems as though there's there's a you know that 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 is like a decision made by the nominating forces, which I I I don't think that it is. I I think that we had. Uh, we we had movies that 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 were that sort of deserved uh, this kind of um, this kind of attention. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, I think that yeah, I I don't really have a have a real. I mean, I I tend to come from the tradition of thinking about actors as sort of I mean I as as not necessarily the 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 vehicles of the art form you know that they you know they they are i mean i'm i'm not as 
as as extreme as someone like um, 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 Alfred Hitchcock, who you know, who famously called actors cattle, right? Who basically you know understood actors to basically be manipulable objects, uh, you know, that were that basic, you know, f- that that were sort of there to serve his directorial vision. I'm not I'm not that full on of a sort of auteur. Uh, you know, a, a film film uh, maker, but but I I do tend to think that that you know that, that acting can sort of um, I don't know that, that that oftentimes these nominations are you know they're they're political they're um, they are sort of the, to the to the to the extent that by political we mean sort of publicists uh, be you know sort sort of ability to uh, to to lobby for their their clients right like mm-hmm. i do feel like we oftentimes wind up with with actors who you know they're it's predictable emma stone's going to be you know, going to be nominated meryl streep's going to be nominated right so so there's these there are these sort of got you know and then you have gosling and and um i don't know i don't think casey affleck's ever been nominated for no. major war before but you know so so i think that you know actors um I don't know. I mean, yeah. So, so if the question is, do do I am I leaning towards anyone? Um, the answer is yes, but only in the alternate reality where Janelle Monae has been nominated. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag so, KCK. So I want to I want to jump because you talked about you mentioned the Hitchcock quote about actors being cattle, mm. um, and you referenced Moonlight when you talked about Barry Jenkins, mm-hmm. which. I would have to. I mean, I'm, you said that's one of your favorite movies of the of the year, the one that you recommend. Um, and you said that he's he that the directing in that film is something that people are going to look to copy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about that? What about his directorial style or directing leads you to make that that statement? You know, it got called it got a, it got called a quiet movie by a lot of critics. Um, which I kind of I kind of understand what what where where they're going f- there and I but I think that that was almost like a veiled cautionary uh, um, adjective. It's like this is not going to be a movie where a lot of stuff happens, right? And it's kind of a movie where where not a lot of stuff happens, but like you know, so is Terrence Malick's Boyhood, right? Like so so are are these these movies that would that were sort of you know or or um, Steve McQueen's. Um, um, Am I, is it Steve McQueen? Are you talking Twelve Years a Slave? Twelve Years a Slave, but but his his two movies before Twelve Years a Slave, um, Hold on. one was called Hunger and the other one was called Shame. These are oh, movies man. that were these really kind of, um, you know, these these character studies um, that 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 I think you know were were movies that sort of and and Shame had a lot of had Shame and um, Hunger had. Some star interest. They were both. Uh, they were both uh, the, the stars of both of those movies. Was were Michael Fassbender, and um, so a lot of it was just a study in doing close-ups of Michael Fassbender's face. Um, but <laughs> but but there's this kind of you know so the, this sort of preference of kind of tone and atmospherics over over plot and and um, you know and, and and sort of forward action. That you know so so Moonlight so Moonlight has that has has that quality. Uh, to it, so the but and I and I think that 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 sounds it, it speaks to a certain kind of minimalism that is kind of you know that that I think is all that has been kind of in the background of a lot of Hollywood movies. I'm thinking of like social media and like the decision 
to I'm sorry, not social media, it's the social network, the movie about Facebook. Um, and the decision to sort of to have Trent Reznor, the guy from Nine Inch Nails, do the sound or do the music for that movie, you know, and like and the 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 theme for that movie was was, you know, basically like four notes. Dun, dun, dun. Right. And, and there's this sort of like this, it, it's this sort of invitation into a kind of, you know, a sort of way of feeling as you live in the world, as opposed to a kind of, you know, interest, as opposed to like a, you know, a purient interest in what's going on. And it's not that Moonlight isn't, spoiler alert, a movie that like has some purient interest, right? Like there, there are, you know, this is a movie about a, a gay kid right uh the, you know the the this this is a movie that, that has certain kinds of um so that speaks to certain social issues that are uh that one could treat in a way that likes looked like an after school special or something right but this is you know th- this it, it's treated in a way that i think is um is just utterly beautiful and that and that i think and that uses um um, elements of you know, and basically just uses visual language in a way that um, supersedes anything that actors are doing on the screen. Right? It's a movie that you can watch with the sound off and be kind of mesmerized by. So I I think that's you know that that's something that you know it's probably just wishful thinking that I hope people will mimic that because I I'm I'm a film professor and I like to watch art arty movies and this is an arty <laughs> movie you know and but the other thing you know the thing is like this that guy's young like this is one of the things that kind of again old curmudgeon about me um kind of kind of bummed me out about like the the oscars this year it's like i think two at least two maybe even th- three which would be the majority of director nominations these people are younger than me right <laughs> so so we have like we have like i mean this kid D- damien chazelle who did um La La Land. Like he was born in 1985. He's younger than you. The hell's he doing making Oscar-winning movies, right? So, yikes. Uh, so, <laughs> but it, I think it says some good things about about what's what's going to happen, right? Now it's interesting with Chazelle. We have him sort of reaching back to a kind of 30s era of like musical uh, genre, right? Whereas, whereas um, I think the more um, uh, the 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 riskier move is the Barry Jenkins move to, right. to sort of sort of make a kind of quiet art movie. And so, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like that movies like La La Land yeah. are kind of catnip for voters. They're, especially if they're period pieces mm-hmm. back early 1900s or a few, I'm thinking like the Queen, is it the King's Speech? I'm sorry, I'm going to the, the Queen's Speech. King's Speech. King's Speech. Um, those type of movies are there's something that voters just really are attracted to. And if you do a good job, a good to great job, like they're going to notice that. Yeah. Although the King's Speech, man, like I, I remember my, my reaction to the King's Speech when it came out, what was that, like 2014? I don't know. Um, my reaction was, that is a great movie about wallpaper. Because, like, <laughs> I mean, it was there was a lot of really cool wallpaper in that movie, and you know, it, 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 that that was another very quiet movie. That I mean, the interest in that movie t- t- totally baffled me. And on a different level, the interest in uh, in La La Land, I mean, it's kind of predictable, but it's also it also kind of like I'm surprised that it that it has the most nods. Like it it's 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 a. <laughs> It's not a it's not a surprising movie. I mean, it, you know, it's not a movie that um, it's a movie that that I think you know has a, does do a lot of the things that 
a particularly, you know, in a particularly nostalgic moment of American uh, history, we want movies to do, right? So I think that more than, and th- this is why, like, the, the other, so my, you know, there's two ways of asking the question about, like, 2016, which movie to watch, right? Moonlight, if you want to see a movie that is unprecedented. La La Land, if you want to see a movie whose popularity speaks to, I think, a, nat- a national sort of need, right? Like, there wa- there there is that kind of, you know, now it's also, this, it's also true that this is a movie, like, this is a, you know, essentially like a, a 30s, um, musical that is essentially about struggle and about not necessarily spoiler alert uh, overcoming that struggle <laughs> perfectly, right? So, so it's you know it's it's not a total escape. It's not a total you know like La La Land is not is not it's not. I mean the title is a little bit ironic. We're not really going into La La Land, and when we sort of know that in the fir- in the opening sequence, which is the best uh, for for me the. The best scene. I mean, there's the, my my two favorite scenes: are the opening sequence and the sequence where Emma Stone um, gives her career-defining um, um, uh, audition and basically just sort of tells a story of her life that 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 sort of changes everything. the The opening sequence is basically it's a, it's a traffic jam that turns into a dance number, and and that's the but like that's where like you sort of have this you know kind of making lemonade out of a particular situation, right? Like that's where, you know, that, and, and, and the kind of the shifting over into the imaginative, you know, world of song and dance sort of happening uh, in a way that I think does kind of unlock a certain kind of magic of cinema, right? But then it's like, I mean, that's, it's, that's a promise. That opening sequence is a promise that I didn't see fulfilled through the movie, right? Because the movie then like almost immediately becomes a movie about like, you know, two white people struggling to make it, you know, when, when the opening sequence is of, you know, is like this sort of deliberately sort of multicultural sort of, uh, sort of ensemble piece. Right. And then it turns out that, Oh, Oh, this is a movie about a a white guy who likes jazz. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, which, I mean, not that, and I, I think that, that, that's a little, that, that might be a little too much of a, I'm not trying to diss it, but I am dissing it a little. I mean, you know, I mean, (laughs) So th- on this show, if anyone who's listened to this show knows that, you know, I have strong opinions normally about sports. <laughs> um, so, you know, hey, okay. that this is what we do here. All right. uh, talking to uh, Professor Jason Arthur, the pro- associate professor of English at Rockhurst University about the Oscars uh, and movies in general. So this next question I have is because you talked a lot about um, you said how the King's Speech was a great film about wallpaper. You yeah. talked about some of the um the visionary things that you saw behind Moonlight and just you talked about La La Land about how that opening sequence of of an ensemble piece so for the average person right who isn't a cinephile who um who goes to watch you know I mean look in my house we are Marvel fanatics right we go watch the big blockbuster Marvel movies but for those if you are trying to um educate someone on how to be a more sophi- not I don't want to say sophisticated, but just something above a novice level. What are some things that we as moviegoers should look for um, to determine if a film is good or not? Oh, that's such a that that's <clears throat> that's the kind of <laughs> question that makes me that like makes the the professor and me or makes me want to punch the professor and me. Just make sure he doesn't he's not the one who talks. 
because I don't want to say stuff like mise-en-scene and cinematography and all, I don't want to do all that. Because, um, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that, well, so I, so here's, I guess the thing, the way that I would answer that question. Um, and it, it, it goes back to something that my father taught me about how to watch basketball. I'm on a sports podcast, so I'm doing this. <laughs> right, so, um, Full he, circle. My, my dad loves watching basketball, and and um, and I, as as a kid, I was, <clears throat> I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't necessarily see how and why it, it was as um, as engrossing as he thought it was, and he was like, "Son, you gotta look, you gotta watch, you gotta look away from the ball." He's like, "Don't watch the ball." watching the ball is a distraction. You got to watch what the guys away from the ball are doing. And I think on some level, like that's how, I don't know if it's a good way to watch movies, but that's kind of how I watch movies. Like I, I, I like the idea of sort of seeing how the, the surrounding, um, you know, the, that, that, which is sort of the marginal interest of the film gets treated, right. And whether it gets treated at all, right. Whether, you know, so, so you can kind of, you can pick up on, I think, certain kinds of um, intention, I think, when you're looking away from the ball and not sort of, again, sort of, I think, folk, go, going back to my thing about how, like, actors, you know, can kind of sometimes eclipse the broader uh, the broader significance of a film, right? Like, so if a thing is only a star vehicle, um, then you might be missing out on stuff. And I, and I do think that La La Land is a film that, if you look away from the ball, you will you will see its artistry, right? I mean, Damien Chazelle, I mean his his movie Whiplash, which was about uh, drumming. Did you see that? I love loved Whiplash. Yeah, no, it's that was um, that that was an amazing movie. And frankly, to preempt your question about my favorite sports movie, Whiplash is one of my favorite sports movies. Like it's sort of structured almost like because of the competition, the aspect. competition. Yeah. And you know the 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 training and the you know and and the the ultimate you know the coach I mean well the, uh, the yeah you have the 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 deranged coach yeah, yeah. right you know they and the um, and sort of the winning in the end kind of thing spoiler alert um, but yeah so like that kind of I mean so I I I think Damien Chazelle is is an amazing um, craftsman uh, insofar as like he because he has like his his expertise sort of begins elsewhere right it begins like he he's his expertise begins in music right and he's sort of carrying that into uh filmmaking which is kind of an interesting sort of way in um so yeah i mean i think that you know he orchestrates i mean does amazing stuff i mean doing the camera work in that movie is crazy i mean yeah. that you know like there, there's a lot of did you see la la land i have not seen la la, okay. la land but the, there's a lot of um there's a lot of exti- a, a lot of long or um, long duration shots. Uh, sometimes I think they're they're C- they're sort of CGI'd after. The, I mean, because there there are times when we have sort of long duration shots that'll sort of where the camera will basically go down into a pool and come back up, right? So there there there's a lot of very. I mean, th- so the orchestration, um, you know, of of scenes is uh, is is pretty. Um, there's a lot of work that goes into those things. I mean, it's like in Uratu kind of kind of level of like super, um, you know, well crafted. Everybody's got to hit their mark kind of thing, right? So so there's it does yeah. So basically, to get back to that question, to a, a tip for watching a film is is to kind of look at things that are not that we're not that, that, that you're not being begged to look at, right? That you know sort of attend to elements of 
what's in the frame that maybe um, not everybody else is looking at. So two things. First, um, your father is a good man as, <laughs> as as a basketball guy. As a guy who prefers basketball, it's his favorite sport. It is. Um, he, he is a good man, and, and he is absolutely correct. The What happens off the ball is more important more t- more times than not than the person who has it. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, guys, Thursday, I'm going in on the Boogie Cousins thing. Um, so stay tuned for that because that was uh, a shocking development at the end of the All-Star game that just took place last night. Mm-hmm. Um, two, speaking of looking off the ball in terms of a movie perspective, that reminds me of watching Tomb Raider. Uh, the Angelina Jolie movie for the first time where I felt like a good 30 minutes was nothing more than just shots of her face while people talked. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't get the chance to pop, to take in things that were happening around her because they were just close-up shots of her face because they just wanted you to go, hey, look how pretty she is. Um, and don't pay attention to the plot line, which doesn't make much sense, or the fact that the acting is kind of subpar. So, yeah, I'm taking shots at Tomb Raider. Yeah, yeah, it is All what right. it is. All right. I haven't seen it. <laughs> well, Sorry. I mean – Knowing your background, it would not be your your kind of movie. I know, I know. You know, which is which is fine, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> uh, so you, since you did mention um, a little bit of your family, I want to shift here for just a second cool. um, and talk about you know kind of your upbringing, right? You are you've talked about writing and mm-hmm. about how to make students who come through your class better writers. Yep. Um, growing up for you, I mean, is that something that that you were always attracted to? Was that a process? I mean, how was that in terms of writing and then kind of secondarily film? That's a good question. So actually, it wasn't something that I grew up with. Like, I, I think I, <clears throat> it wasn't until my, my, my junior, senior in high school that I was, um, that I was ever uh, interested in writing. And it, and, it, I, and it came from an English teacher who pulled me aside one day to tell me that you know, this is something you should probably pursue. Uh, and I was like, really? And I think, and honestly, I, th- I think that the, the we, we, were, we were doing creative writing that day, and I believe I had written a, a, a poem about basketball. No, sorry, it was about football, because it was about, it was actually about this changing of the seasons into fall. And, uh, but it, but it kind of, it, it was also about like the beginning of football season, which is a big thing in high schools, right? But, um, so, so I had that kind of, I, I was, it was when I was told by a men, by a mentor, um, Brenda Peak. Shout out to uh, to Brenda Peak, uh, my senior high, my senior high school English teacher, um, that she she sort of even planted that seed. And it, uh, up until that point, that ha- that wasn't something that would have occurred to me. Um, people in my family didn't do that kind of thing. I mean, we did. You know, you didn't. Um, very few of us even went to college, so so there was there was um, that was kind of it, it was mentorship that 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 kind of st- uh, st- turned me in that direction. Um, yeah, and then I so then I got into got interested in literature and and film to some degree because like I noticed that how few people like me were in those things. Right, there was a way in which I felt like you know there was um, I felt like there should be there should be a kind of, I don't know. It, it seemed like it. It did. It, it seemed like a challenge that, that 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 was that was worth taking on, and it seemed like I was. You know that that was a, a world that I thought that to some degree, people. You know, my someone from my family should should uh, should should be rep- be represented in that conversation. So that was kind of how how that went. 
Okay. That's interesting. So I do want to – I'm going to pick back up on that line of question because cool. I want to ask you about um, your books. Uh-oh. Um, so we're going to get into that in just a second. But first, um, to kind of get back to the movie aspect of it, mm-hmm. what – if you are going to recommend – some of your just one or two of some of your favorite films that you enjoy watching for whatever whatever reasons that may be and I'm I'm going off the beaten path here but if there are one or two and I know that's I mean for a person who watch who does this for a living or who is like you said who's kind of gone down this lane that may be a tough one it is a tough one yeah I need more I need more uh <laughs> I need another I need more limits just one or two movies so okay so it, how many? How many can we go? I mean, we're talking five. We're talking ten. No, I don't want that. I I want I want a more specific question. Ah, okay, okay. Um, so should I go by genre? No, I mean it hasn't. But just ask the question again. <laughs> okay. And maybe I'll come up with something. So, just what are what are some of your favorite films? Oh, your one of. Just a favorite film of yours that you and that when you watch it, either I mean, you could say you could go back to Moonlight, you could okay, go to something, okay. um, you go broke back Mountain. I'm thinking of movies we watch in class, right? right? But right. Um, Ice okay. Storm, which I really enjoyed, Ice Storm, by the way. Did you? Um, yeah, but okay. you know, I mean, it doesn't. It could be again. It could be something that you teach in class, like okay. it's just a film that when you watch it, you when you watch it either in the moment or okay. during subsequent. Um, Rewatchings, if you will, that okay. you said I enjoyed that movie. Well, so speaking of class, and you know, and and kind of um, watching films, that's one of the things that I think is sort of fascinating about teaching film. It's like, I mean, the the movies that that I that I I taught like this year, uh, or the, the the semester that you were in class, I've seen those movies like twelve, fifteen times, but st- seeing them in a kind of in in a classroom setting they're always new right so i'm always kind of i'm watching as much and and attending as much to reception as i am to what's happening on the screen right cuz i i think that that you know that films when they are screened become different films depending on who's in the room and uh so so that's been you know that that's kind of something that i'm kind of fascinated by so i'm trying to think of a film that has that, that i've screened to multiple Groups of students and ways in which it it's become a different film depending on on um, on who is watching and it kind of um, uh, I figured that something would jump to my head as I started that long rambling <laughs> beginning but nothing is I'm terrible I am so terrible at the what's your favorite book what's your favorite movie thing I'm awful at it like because I the minute I say something seven other things sprout into the you know the place and as i drive home tonight i'll be like oh you know what i I totally screwed that one up i should have done well, this other one so i am that way about certain things as well mm-hmm. um i can be that way about music i can be that way about basketball players you know okay. so i mean i okay. i completely understand so i mean if that if you don't have a gr- i don't want to say great answer if you don't have an answer to that yeah. then it's okay like it's not for some reason i'm wanting to say something I'm wanting to say, but well, I, I guess that Hitchcock is a director who makes movies that people respond to in interesting ways, right? Like, so I've taught the the birds in various settings, right? And that's that's a weird movie from an interpretation standpoint. Like, no, you know, there's no real answer to the question why the hell the birds attack, 
right? But um, <laughs> there's the allegorical reading, right? Like it's the 60s, there, you know, like it's the early 60s in San Francisco. There's a way in which like the birds are sort of some symbol for counterculture and the way in which it's gaining steam, right? Like there, there's a lot of different fun ways to interpret, but it's it's at the end of the day, there there is no answer, and it is it is a movie wherein the the viewer is simply asked to deal with a world wherein for no damn reason all these birds just get crazy. <laughs> so and, uh, I, yeah. I, I watched that movie. I took a film class in eighth grade, uh-huh. and we watched The Birds, and I remember walking home. It's a fall evening, and so walking to my apartment, there are birds all in the trees, and yeah. I ran home. They're terrible. Like I was, for about a week, I was completely terrified of of birds. So, and also, you know, me, me and B were having this conversation when I was telling him, you know, I have my professor coming over. We talked about Hitchcock movies, you know, and I said mm. some of my favorite movies from that class. Mm. Um, well, we'll only only watch one, I believe, right? Rear was window. Rear, rear Window. Mm-hmm. Um, and he brought up Disturbia, which mm-hmm. seemed to be a. I That's have a Rear Window Disturbia. remake. Yeah, it's a Rear Window me remake, and I was like, yeah. there you go, you know, full circle there. So, totally. yeah, I mean, if you if you haven't if you've only seen Hitchcock Psycho, I would you know, admonish you or encourage you to go outside the spectrum and watch some of his other movies. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Really good movies like Rear Window um, was really good. Um, Obviously, The Bird, Psycho, blah, 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 blah. So check out his, his, uh, see, I'm thinking music. I almost said discography. Um, (laughs) Check out, you know, kind of what his, his, I don't know what the word I'm looking for here. Film library. Film. Yeah, there we go. Check that out. And I think you'll be really good. Also, a movie that I'm going to recommend um, that we watched from class was The Killers. I really enjoyed The Killers. I thought that was oh, great. I thought that was a really good movie. So it's black and white films, which again, me and B were having this conversation. He's he mentioned his mother loves Turner Classic Movie Channel um, <laughs> to watch some of those old uh, black and white movies or some mm-hmm. of them they've added color to. Um, That's terrible. You again, see B like um right here. I told him. I said so. I had um, Fabrizio had Professor Fabrizio. Yeah, and so we talked about colorization and. Um, kind of the backlash that came with that. So again, guys, there's a lot to learn about mm-hmm. film here. I mean, again, like I said, there's taking that both of those classes gave me a better appreciation for film um, that I didn't have before. So um, can I one more millennial gripe? <laughs> All right, <laughs> it's a big one. Um, one th- another thing that I've noticed. This is not a millennial gripe. This is just sort of uh, a film student gripe. Young film students need to understand that black and white movies, that is not a genre of movies. <laughs> that is simply <laughs> black that and white is true. Film that is, is simply true. a type of film stock. It's a type of film. Right? So, so then, you know, there will, there, will, there will inevitably be a half a dozen film journals to be like, I, I don't usually like black and white movies, but this movie, I like, <laughs> you know, it's not the, so yeah, that, that's not, black and white movies can be all kinds of genres. You can have you can have all all kinds of things can happen with on on black and white film stock. It is not a genre of film in the same way that that foreign language movies are also not a genre of movie. So those are uh, you millennials. You screw up not, everything. You ruin everything. It's not millennials. It, it's young people <laughs> of any generation. All right. So I want to get back again. So get back to to you personally. Okay. Um, as we head down the yes, home I stretch hate birds. here. <laughs> Next, um, so you've written. You talked about it early on if you've written some scholarly articles, but you also have published mm-hmm. um, a book. Let me make sure I get the title right. Good luck. It's a long one. 
Uh, let me see. Did I write the whole thing down? I did not. I just kind of – I did not get kind of the subtitle. I just That's wrote fine. down Violet America, right? So it's Violet America and give me the rest of it, please, okay. sir. Yeah, so the subtitle – is regional cosmopolitanism in U.S. fiction since the Great Depression. There's a reason why you didn't <laughs> want to say that. So yeah, Violet America. It's called Violet America because t- because Rick, Rick Moody had already written a novel called Purple America. So I but and I still wanted it to be, I I still wanted the title to to have something to do with a mixture of red and blue, combined. I I I wanted a color plus America, so I had to go with Violet. And plus Violet is more blue than red, so I kind of like that. So anyway, yeah. So this is a book about it's it's a it's a book about basically about how and how literature is a warning and an antidote to red state blue state cultural division. It's a book. It's kind of a literary history of like literature that kind of warns against basically <clears throat> the defining sort of you know political problem of our age, which is polarization. Yikes! So. I will say, so, and that is, and I, so on this show, I try, I try not to link, get too much into politics because although I did say that stick to, stick to sports is dead, right? So there, there's this thought in that when that sports writers cool. verge or veer into the political realm to make statements or to talk about uh, social issues that they, the sports fan revolts and says, I come to sports to get away from the distractions of the world. Um, and those days are dead. Uh, mm-hmm. When when you have Russell Wilson, a tame figure who tries to cultivate an image of I am the all-American guy, saying stuff about Trump. When you have Steph Curry making statements about, you know, you know he's an asset if you remove the E.T. Uh, on the flip side, I mean, Trevor Bauer of the Indians, who went on this huge, I think it was 180-tweet rant about mm-hmm. about being pro-Trump. Like, I, those – those days are dead. Like we're not, we're not mm-hmm. going to have that anymore. And that I didn't even get into legislation in North Carolina or Texas or Illinois about um, benefits for re- retired players mm-hmm. and capping that. So I mean, there, guys, I'm just, I'm just telling you, like those days are are dead and gone. But as a guy who is, mm, I, I mean, I'm a moderate. Like I don't check any. I think if. If I were to take a Cosmo or BuzzFeed, what are you, red or blue? Like, are you liberal or conservative? I'm pretty sure it would come out saying more. It would be, you lean slightly conservative. But because of, you know, some some of the policies, I don't really rock with. And the same thing goes for Democrats. So I consider myself down the middle, and it definitely bugs me. Like, I'm going back and forth with the guy on Facebook right now, mm. where when I talk about something, he start goes, well, if it's not Black Lives Matter and Black and Black, I'm like, bro, we're not talking about that. Like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Um, so, like for me though, that is that irks me to no end. Is that we are not having conversations about these things which we need to have, mm-hmm. but we're not having them in a meaningful way. It's automatically it's talking points. It's here are these here are these facts. What are you going to do with that? It's not a person to person conversation on okay, here are the issues. How do we make this better as a society? But it's just kind of entrenching yourself into a particular uh, political ideology, right? Yes. Um, so, I mean, I'm not asking you to necessarily expound on that. That's just me kind of just saying, I mean, that is a very frustrating thing for me to talk to people on both sides of the aisle about. And right. it and it just irks me to no end. So. Yeah. And especially when I think when, you know, back to a, a term you used earlier, you know, sensibility, 
there there are sort of there is overlapping sensibilities at, you know on either side but 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 there there's a way in which that's not allowed like that those commonalities are not allowed uh in in the kind of cl- in in a climate that um is as polarized as as it is and you know and polar you know and some some of the polarization is real right uh is is the result of a certain kind of you know set of historical conditions that have led the country to be to look the way that it does right but a lot of it i think is also um is also kind of a, a you know on some level fake it's on some level you know we we have intentional uh polarization right be- that will sort of allow for voting blocks that will uh you know be very um um predictable uh in terms of how they're going to vote this is how you know this is what this is with the advent of social politics uh you know in the in 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 the 80s we now know how you know certain types of 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 demographic are going to vote based on where how they stand where they stand on gay marriage or where where they stand on abortion right so so there are ways in which that benefits you know basically the one who needs there to be a you know a stable voting block so yeah that's um i'm gonna have to check so i definitely so when i when i you know kind of had this initial conversation with you about having you on the show i went back and um went to amazon looked you up Uh added the book to my wish list now that you've kind (laughs) of given me this synopsis i definitely need to make sure i go and once i guess summer school hits (laughs) maybe try to make my way to that book they're like a ton of my wish list on amazon is really long oh mine's mine's crazy long but you know but yeah so i i would recommend again if you are someone who who like myself who um is upset at the amount of polarization that happens on both sides of the aisle mm-hmm. um i would recommend go check that book out um and if you get to it before me like kind of give me you know a spoiler alert if you will um <laughs> so i can then kind of go in and and kind of make my own notes and compare what you said versus what i'm reading and taking in also um so you mentioned that you are on sabbatical right now and part of that sabbatical is because Mm -hmm. you are working on a new book i am i'm trying to write another sort of scholarly um book this one's going to be a little more interesting i think (laughs) i mean the other (laughs) one's fine but um yeah this one is it's called missing the blackout i currently that's what it's called subtitled um nostalgia in the 21st century and so it's it's gonna be a book about it started when I noticed that like a lot of a lot of novels in the 21st century were being set in the 1970s, and so I, and so I started to note <clears throat> I noticed this sort of trend where the 70s are are becoming interesting to young people, and and so the book is my way of figuring out what's the way what that's all about, and sort of what you know what it might be about that era that is um, that is alluring. Uh, to to readers and 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 to film goers as well, right? I mean, there, you know, so there there's a lot of um, movies that I think are sort of borrowing aesthetics from the '70s. That uh, so yeah, so it's it's a book, but I'm I'm super in the early stages of writing it, and, you know, and it's um, I have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's been that's been the case for the last month uh, from day to day. I have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> sometimes you know as as a testament to this show sometimes sometimes that's not necessarily a bad thing though right um this show can be very much fly by the seat of your pants like what's happening next so I know. um on a very small micro level obviously yours is a is a huge more large macro level of 
hey, you have to get this book done. Like, I don't, if I never record a podcast again, you know, like there'll be like 15 people goes, hey, dude, whatever happened. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's about as many people as probably read Violet America, 15. So <laughs> I have to go back and remember, I could have swore I saw that there were some, at least maybe, maybe there are other professors who said, this is a really good piece of work. And maybe that was, it was professors and not reviewers. But I mean, I would think that from your peers, right? Like it, that matters to get kind of that, uh, I don't want to say pat on the back, but that kind of, hey, good job from those who are in your profession or, and are your peers. Mm-hmm. On Amazon, I have exactly one five-star review, and that is – so basically I'm batting a 1,000 on Amazon. You can't right? you can't do it. I mean, it. yeah, you and killed it's been, it. And, it, and it, it's been reviewed in a couple of uh, scholarly journals. That, not bad. It, I've been given an okay by my peers. So, um, No, yeah, so it's been – that's – the life of a scholarly book is is a very strange thing because I mean it kind of it it exists to serve you know other people who spend their lives thinking about literature or, you know spend their lives thinking about the subject and it you know and it, it's it's bought primarily by academic libraries right you know so it's a it's got a, the idea that there's even an Amazon profile for something like this is kind of a little bit funny to me. <laughs> All right, so coming down the home stretch with uh, oh. Professor Jason Arthur, um, associate professor of literature at Rockhurst University. Um, one, I think this is going to be my final question. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is something that I forgot to put on the itinerary, so please forgive me. Oh, um, here's the curveball. I knew this it. This is the curveball. This is Damn a curveball. So if you um, could give any piece of advice to – I don't want to say college students because you deal kind of in college students, but those who are young people are coming up who are, you know, who have the world in front of them, they still have that notion of innocence, if you will. To So I'm thinking middle school, maybe early high school age, right? You talked about your senior year, how Miss Peak mm-hmm. kind of set you on this path um, that you had never considered before. So if you had a piece of advice to that age group of young middle schoolers, um, high schoolers who are getting prepared to attack the world, the next group of whatever's coming after millennials, because I don't know what the next new generation is going to be called, but what See, would that what would that piece of advice be to those group of people? Ask questions. Ask, ask questions that nobody's expecting to hear about. I mean, ask, you know, fig- try to figure out what is going on in the world. <laughs> I mean, ask the questions about why the world is the way it is now, right? I mean, so sort of the first thing that I have my my students, and these are college students too, in my freshman comp class, you know, their their first assignment is to understand the conditions in which they will be learning, right? Learning does not happen in a vacuum. It happens under certain conditions, right? And when you start to think about the conditions in which you're learning, you start to sort of, you know, that that's when the 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 broader sort of swath of history kind of becomes visible. You know, it's like, wait, wait a second. Why does, you know, why, why does my bookshelf have, you know, an encyclopedia Britannica from 1967 that's missing the I and P, right? Like, you know, like where, where, where is, how come the resources that are, that, that are um, available to me look like this, right? So when you start to sort of ask the questions about, the 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 conditions in which you're doing the learning i mean that so it's kind of it's sort of asking people to it's asking it's hard it's hard thing to ask young people to do to 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 be real meta about how they're learning right but so it's not just about what you're learning but it's about the you know the the context 
in which you're learning. And so I asked students at Rockhurst like to think about like you know why you know what what do you know about the neighborhood? What 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 do you know about where we are physically? And so I asked them to I get I asked them to walk around. I asked them to 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 put themselves into the world in a very deliberate way, right? And so I think that's the thing that I I, I, I would ask of, of of young people is to is to always ask questions, man. Like that I I remember one of the one of my earliest memories is when I um when I learned the word why, and I it, I would just use the hell out of it just to keep uh, grown ups like paying attention to me i just keep ask, asking them why because wow. I, I realized that that was that by saying that word that somehow compelled them to keep talking to me right <laughs> even though i didn't know what the hell they were saying i just kept saying why right so so i think and that was and that was a kind of it was a way of you know engaging and sort of forcing i think forcing people to you know for, forcing my my parents forcing you know pe- people in positions of authority to kind of to articulate for me you know why the world looks the way it does right so i, I think that's um, that's a very powerful thing that that i think young people have and that i think that power kind of diminishes the older you get like there are there are ways in which i can't ask why anymore right because to some degree i'm the answer to why like i'm i'm turning you know being a, being an associate professor of english right now i'm like a tenured like i'm like part of the i'm part of the problem i'm like the man i'm like part of the system now right <laughs> so like <laughs> The, I have to be accountable now to people asking me why, right? right. And that, but that—that that is, I think, what I what I, I I I think asking why is a very is a very empowering thing to do, and and never stop asking why. I I think that's always uh, that's that's going to make the world bigger, um, and it might make it harder to live in too, because you know, learning about the conditions, you know, this you know, lear- learning about the, the the surrounding conditions of your life doesn't always mean that it's easy to live in that in that world, right? But when you're in middle school, man, the bubble isn't hardly even hasn't already has hasn't been, you know, solidified around you yet, right? So you can still maybe make it to where you're not in that bubble, right? A lot of us are still walking around in bubbles like that. You know, and a lot of us have felt recently a, a bursting of a bubble, right? Or you know, or or we sort of there's a way in which with with political you know polarization. It's so easy to just retreat into the safe space. The fact oh, that you're engaging oh. with people on Facebook, you're so much more courageous than I am. Like I am, I would never try to have a conversation with somebody who 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 has, you know, whose 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 opinions are diametrically opposed to mine because I wouldn't even know how to start talking to that person, right? And that that's a f- flaw that I need to that I need to learn how to correct. But it comes from years of having lived in a in a in a world that was kind of predictable, you know, like, I mean, be, being in my, in my profession, even though like I'm dedicated to lifelong learning and I'm supposed to be, you know, thinking about, you know, be, being critical and skeptical about the world around me, that culture has, has its bubble too, man. You know? And so I, I think that asking questions early on, maybe will keep you out of your key, keep you out of that situation where you all of a sudden you're a grown person and you realize the world is not at all what you thought it was. So that's very interesting. Um, I think I can't – I'm going to screw this up, but I read ta Coates' Between the World and Me, mm-hmm. and he talks about how his mother would have him – I can't remember if it was his mother, father, or grandmother, but one of his um, elders would have him – when he got in trouble, she would make him write papers on why. Mm, interesting. Why did you do that? Like in, to help him understand his own – um, 
I don't want to say the wrongdoing, but just have him investigate his own thought making process of what led you down the road to do this. So I find the fact that you that you say specifically ask why mm-hmm. to be very interesting. So parents, obviously, you know, mm-hmm. um, as you talk to your kids, mm-hmm. hey, never stop asking questions. And as far as the um, that, yeah, I mean, I try to be um, again, like I said, I'm not. I'm not left nor right mm-hmm. leaning. I try mm-hmm. to keep myself in the middle. Mm-hmm. And so it shocks people when I go, yeah, I read Breitbart. Mm-hmm. And not hate read it either. Not <laughs> not not hate read it in a way to go, you know, right? Like, But read it in a way of, of trying to understand opposing viewpoints um, and, and to say, okay, okay, you made a good point there. Because I think, again, like I said, to, to me that is crucial in – trying to break down these walls. And mm-hmm. like you said, there are going to be people you run across, whether it be on social media or in life, who just, mm-hmm. they're they're comfortable mm-hmm. with their ideo- ideological walls, right? With their, you know, and that's kind of, I don't know if that's bars or not. So they have this thing on the show where A. Ward is a battle rapper, so he's good with words. So he can okay. pun, make a pun out of anything. Nice. Um, and so, you know, but I mean, again, like I said, it's, I hope to, I hope to give people a reason to think. Why do you think, uh, back to why, why do you think the way that you do? Why do you think that is acceptable? And, and then when you talk about the historical context of history, mm-hmm. um, you know, I had a conversation about a guy about the Netflix show um, Dear White People mm-hmm. and kind of the backlash it's receiving. And it just on a deeper level, I started talking to him about blackface. And I'm like, do you understand the historical context of blackface? Mm-hmm. And he, you know, again, he's went on this whole rant about something that had nothing to do with that. And I'm like, look, we may disagree on whether or not, you know, dear white people is a political statement mm-hmm. or if it's trying to be divisive or whatnot. But however, the theme in which they're discussing within that has a historical context in which makes black people go, hey, I would appreciate it if you don't do that. Right. Right. And and you just kind of dismissing that history because you think I'm trying to guilt you or shame you. It's foolish. Like you have to understand where where we came from to understand and part where we are going. And why wouldn't you want to do that? Why wouldn't you want the world to be deep and big and complex? Right. Like that's what that that's what makes being alive exciting, right? And I and and also difficult, right? But yeah, I mean, sort of coming to that, um, coming to those moments where you you know, sort of, yeah, are invited into something like the history of blackface minstrelsy, man. Like I mean. I, I remember the moment when, when, you know, this white kid sort of, you know, started learning about, you know, sort of the the antecedents to a lot of what, you know, American pop culture, uh, you know, sort of grew from, right? And it's and it's a it's it's very complex, but it's also it's it's also a fascinating story that that I would I would never want to turn my eyes from, you know, as 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 difficult and and um and charged as it is, I don't want to live in a world that doesn't have history. Right, right. And like I said, we we, we have to learn. Like I mean, there's you can't learn anything if you don't. Uh, I mean, well, I can't say you can't learn anything, but it's it's hard to have to understand context. It's hard to understand, like I said, like the where we're headed if we don't understand the past. So, um, any final words from yourself? Anything you like to say? Um, you can at this point in the show we start shouting out people. So if you want to, hey, shout out my wife. Shout out. <laughs> shouting out. I'm not, I don't have anything to shout out. I've been living in a. I've this is this is not a bubble I've been living in, but I I've been living under a mountain of research. So I have not, I I have not engaged talking to you. This is the most I've talked in like two months. 
Well, shout out I, to the research, <laughs> then. You know, shout out to the research. You, you. Oh, been, you're you're going to South by Southwest. I will be down in Austin during South by Southwest. So okay. I don't well, know what, so that's is a he performing tentative down thing. there. It's tentative. It's tentative because I have to get approval from the wife, right? So well, I have to get, to get that sometimes. It, it's not. So I'm hoping that the fact that I just took her on a surprise trip to Valentine's. You may that, call. You may talk to her. If you, you see her, email? yeah, shoot her an email. I'm okay. like, hey, I'm going to be in South by Southwest. I would appreciate seeing your husband down there. Um, <laughs> now, I'm going to be in Austin. I, I don't have the money to go to South by Southwest. You have to have like a million dollars to get into South well, by Southwest. Well, so if I'm going, I have, I'm going under a <gasps> a band pass. So I'm not going to be a roadie. Quote, you got, you got an extra band pass? Yep. Uh, okay. So I, I'm going under a band pass if I go. So I'm not paying for anything I except can, for my I can ticket. carry a drum kit if need be. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so if I if I get a chance to make it down there, I will definitely look you up. Okay. Um, I appreciate you coming through. Um, you are kind of you are the second guest ever on the show and that I've interviewed. So I appreciate you dealing with my fake journalistic skills. Um, <laughs> you passed them off. I I I have fake film professor skills too. So I mean, it's fine. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah. I appreciate you sitting down. I appreciate with you this. having me on, despite the fact that I know next to nothing about sports. Well, again, like I said, you know, it's you've actually made some good connections. Though. I mean, you talked about looking, you know, off the ball in basketball. You talked about the competition of Whiplash, which again, people, if you have not seen Whiplash, I'm telling you, watch Whiplash. Um, Miles Teller, who is the lead in that, was very good, and I cannot think of the gentleman who won. Uh, the best supporting nod for his role as the deranged uh, band leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was also very good. He's the guy from the Farmer's Insurance commercials. Guy. Yeah, so, he is. By the way, so that's kind of the connection there. So <laughs> he's, he's much nicer in the Farmer's Insurance He is much nicer. Although I feel like that would make for better commercials if he just kind of went off on people about the fact that they were, like, screwing up their, their lives and the, the adjusters not being able to – properly note note these situations i feel like that would make a good commercial one so they give just a whole new meaning to bump 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 yeah so uh thank you once again uh professor jason arthur for coming through thanks for having me um, on. this was great thank you sir on behalf of a ward um b um the homie trey clear Air media we appreciate you i'll see you on thursday um, once again you go to itunes Search It's a Black and White Thing to subscribe. You can go to SoundCloud.com, search at Brains and Bars, or SoundCloud.com backslash Brains and Bars to pull up all the episodes that we've done. Um, AmpedEntertainment.net, that episode will be there as well. Facebook, Twitter, search at Brains and Bars to pull it up. IamAward.com to go and check out all of Award's content on his website. Um, and then check me on the radio, 95.3 FM in Kansas City, KCPZ. Down, download the Praise 95 app from the Google Play or iTunes Store. For all of that, shouts out to yourself for listening. Um, enjoy the Oscars coming up this weekend. If you have a something you're rooting for, hopefully it wins. And for Professor Jason Arthur, I'm myself, the homie B, A. Ward, Trey. This has been another episode of It's a Black and White Thing. I'll let y'all next week. See you.